0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by Will Sloan and Justin DeClue of the Important Cinema Club podcast. You may remember them from the clips we used in our episode on 1992's Love Crimes. In addition to co-hosting that podcast together, they also independently record podcasts, and they've co-authored several books as well as written them independently. They're also both delightful on the Hollywood Suite A Year in Film TV series, so we're happy to welcome them to the show. Now it's a bit of a joke about a disaster that never happened, but at the time, Y2K was a serious concern. So much so that here in Ontario, prominent members of the government huddled together in a war room with a week's worth of supplies, watching what was happening with ATMs in Australia. The real reason Y2K didn't happen, and we know about it, well, because a Bramptonian named Peter De DeJager wrote a three-page article in the then widely respected industry magazine, Computer World, titled Doomsday 2000. The New York Times called it the information age equivalent of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Sound overly dramatic? Well, let's let you decide. Will Sloan, what was the millennium bug that was going to bring civilization to its knees?
2: Well, what I know is that my parents sometime around March told me, oh, don't worry, they've got it all figured out.
1: Uh, And I just... And Will's like, I believe my parents as a teenager, so there's nothing to worry about. They
2: never gave me cause to doubt them before or since. And um, uh, I also know that, you know, I've lived through the subsequent 21 years and you know, maybe civilization should have ended. You know, maybe we should have just (laughs) gone out on top, don't you think?
1: As a kid, I went through the period of fear where somebody on the playground told me that a meteorite was going to hit the earth for like two weeks. So, you know, Y2K (laughs) came around and was like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me (laughs) twice, shame on me.
0: I think what's kind of amazing to me is that like this was a legitimate thing and globally, uh, $600 billion were put into fixing this problem and it's the fact that everybody globally went in together to be like, oh, this is a real, thing we actually have to fix this and then at the last moment People genuinely didn't know what was going to happen. So, like, the Chinese government made all of their executives fly on New Year's Eve night just to kind of give them an extra motivation to make sure that the problem was fixed. Like, what a way to go through this. Certain issues did actually crop up. Like, um, at Amway, the computers rejected a batch of chemicals because it looked like it was over 100 years old. And uh, a woman named Mary Bandar, who was born in 1888, she got an automated invitation to enroll in kindergarten things were going weird and the fact that everybody kind of pooled together. But I think one of the things that's so important to keep in mind is that late 90s, early 2000s a lot of people still didn't know what computers were or what they did. It was still very amorphous.
1: I wonder if that an issue like that came up now, if people could fix it in the way they did in 1999. I would say no.
0: I gotta say though, the vaccine like the, the fact that we came up with vaccines in a year is pretty impressive.
2: Mm, that's yeah, true. You're welcome. I mean, I was still pretty young when Y2K happened, so I don't think I understood what the implications of uh, civilization ending would be. I- I- again, If a lot of people didn't understand what computers were, I think a 10, 11 year old boy, especially at that time, didn't understand what computers were. I knew ytv.com, which I accessed sometimes at my dad's workplace, which was where the internet was.
1: Oh, also the (laughs) Mars Attacks movie official website. There were games that could be played there.
2: I did go to the Space Jam website before it was (laughs) like a cool, retro, nostalgic thing. If civilization ended, if if a bunch of bank accounts got screwed up, I, don't, I think that would have left me pretty nonplussed as a 10-year-old.
0: Well, I think the tr- crowd control of trying to keep people to not panic. So uh, Ontario Hydro put out ads being like, everything's fine. We've figured this out. But you might want to stockpile some food and cash just in case.
2: I mean, as we talk about this stuff now, I'm horrified in retrospect. It's like, wait, you're telling me the Chinese government flew out all of their executives? Like... Oh, my God. Like, I should have been much more afraid as a 10-year-old.
1: Yeah. Wait a minute. They said the stockpiled cash? Listen, if everything collapses, that cash ain't going to be worth much.
0: <laughs> well, that's what they, that's why they were watching ATMs, because that was one of the things. Was if computers went down, you wouldn't be able to get cash anymore, so there'd be runs on banks. So people would do that.
1: mm
2: And they would have useless pieces of paper in their hands. Sounds pretty good, actually. I don't know. Like, we could rebuild from the ground up. Wouldn't that be nice?
0: A lot of this info I got comes from a fantastic article written in retrospect uh, by Eric Andrew uh, Gee. I believe it's pronounced Gee. It's G-E-E from the Globe and Mail that I recommend if people want to know like the full history of what went down, it's really excellent. Go have a look at that one. But I think that leads us really well into our first film because, I mean, computers in the late 90s, early 2000s, totally a mystery. So it makes sense that our first movie today deals with technology and its dangers. It also uses the word data in a way I'm sure most people didn't understand in the year 2000, and it also might not actually understand what data means. Now, Godzilla movies have always been about collective and societal fears. Sometimes Godzilla represents those fears, and sometimes it protects us from other monsters that embody those fears, but then blasts everything with its laser breath. So let's quickly go back to the beginning and talk about all all things Godzilla, and specifically Godzilla 2000. Where do you even start? Like, I guess the original movie? Like, how many people now know where Godzilla comes from?
1: I feel like most people do know where Godzilla comes from and his original origins as a kind of reaction to the atomic bombs and the Japanese fears imagined on screen as a giant fire-breathing monster and the way that that monster evolved into a protector and someone that, you know, kids everywhere could love because Godzilla, what's not to love with a giant scaly lizard with atomic radiation breath? I
2: also (laughs) do think, though, that in the last 20 years or so, the popular understanding of Godzilla, at least in the West, has evolved significantly because uh, a lot of the boomers were exposed to Godzilla. The boomers and the Gen Xers were exposed to Godzilla on TV in these pan and scan dubbed versions.
0: That inserted Raymond Burr into the first one, didn't it? He was like, yes, I Oh, see. he was in, in the like, first weird one weird little... and Godzilla 1985. <laughs> yeah, what? they yeah. just
2: added all these scenes of Raymond Burr just like off to the side. <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> drinking
1: Dr. Pepper because they were a sponsor.
2: Yeah, and and the the original version of the 1954 film, which is a a much darker and more somber Godzilla movie than most of the sequels, was not widely available in the West until 2004, I think. Um, because, you know, there was no internet. People were not sharing these files.
0: Now, this is something I think is important to keep in mind, is that in Japan, these movies are taken quite seriously, whereas in North America, they're considered more of a corny joke. Would that be fair to well, say? Well, I
1: don't think they're taken that seriously in Japan, considering that there is a Godzilla TV show called Monster Island, where it's just a bunch of action figures of Godzilla <laughs> things having fun and having dance numbers.
0: But all I know is that I can now zip line into the mouth of oh, Godzilla. That is a real thing that. if I went to Japan, I could do. It. I think
1: that in the West, <laughs> Godzilla, for most like genre film fans, probably has the same level that he does in Japan as far as like liking him, liking the stuff that's good, uh, disliking the stuff that's bad. But like Will said, I think that boomers that grew up with him, including the people that worked on this Godzilla 2000 cut for American audiences, they treated him mostly as a joke because the Godzilla films that they saw in abundance were stuff like Godzilla vs. Megalon or... Um, Godzilla's Revenge, which is the one where it's a bunch of stock footage and um, Godzilla's son getting into goofy shenanigans.
0: What kind of goofy shenanigans?
1: Oh,
2: he's got kind of a Barney Rubble voice in the American dubbed version. Hey, hey let's go voice? on an adventure. Uh <laughs> oh, Godzilla God. wants me to fight, but I'm too much of a coward. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a there's a Godzilla movie where Godzilla flies. That's uh Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. There's one where he talks in the American version. That's Godzilla versus Gaigun. So you know th- these were the movies that boomer audiences really saw a lot, and I think the discourse surrounding Godzilla in the West overwhelmingly, until relatively recently, was focused
1: on the fact that it's a guy in a rubber suit and how. Fake yeah, and that's that is. dumb and fake. How could you do that? <laughs> well, like, it's changed. I think in the present, where it's like, oh, guy in a rubber suit, that's so difficult. There's so much art artistry there, and that's the big difference.
2: I remember when the Roland Emmerich. Uh, 1998, American Godzilla, starring Matthew Broderick, came out, which...
1: Also known as Gino, Godzilla in name only.
0: <laughs> I've also heard it was just Zilla because the original, that the executive of Toho said that Roland Emmerich took the god out of Godzilla, <laughs> so it just became Zilla. Uh,
2: well, I remember Good Morning America did a segment on the history of Godzilla movies, and the people that they got to talk about Godzilla were Mike Nelson and the robots from Mystery Science oh, no. Theater 3000, <laughs> which obviously there's there's a place for that, I guess. But, uh, I mean, can you imagine Good Morning America doing that now? Like, if they were doing it now, they might get, I don't know, somebody who's Japanese uh, to mm-hmm. talk about what what this series actually means in Japan, not some, like... Quipsters to make jokes about how it's a guy in a rubber suit.
0: But let's get into Godzilla 2000 itself. Now, you mentioned the Roland Emmerich one. This is actually a response to the Roland Emmerich film, uh, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But uh, can one of you just give us a brief plot summary of what you can expect going into this one?
2: Take it away, Will. The Godzilla series was frequently shifting around the timeline. So, you know, there was there was a whole series of movies, Cyclone movies in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Then in the 80s, they retconned the whole series Series and said, okay, all those movies don't count except the original. And that series continued into the 90s. Uh, This movie comes after a couple years' break in the series. And essentially, this is the only Godzilla movie I think that doesn't concern itself with issues of chronology. It, It doesn't make any reference to any previous movie. It's just Godzilla's out, he's loose. You know, we're in media res, you know Godzilla.
0: And Godzilla is now just a fact of life. Mm -hmm. Like there's a Godzilla watch network that is like, okay, here they come. We're going to do this again. And it's instead of earthquakes, you just have Godzilla showing up. I believe
1: the Godzilla Millennium Series was really uh, weird in that, as the series went on, each new film would often be a direct sequel to the original Godzilla. They were all starting their own huh. chronology going like, oh, the other ones don't matter. Only this one does.
2: So every year there'd That's be a bizarre. new movie and it would ignore the previous, the year's previous movie. And it'd be like, okay, forget about that. We're, this, is, this is the second Godzilla movie ever. Uh, again, this is very confusing for casual fans, I'm sure but
0: for our purposes, Godzilla Two thousand comes directly after the first godzilla yep, that's right. and it's the first thing to kick off the new segment of films, which was called the millennium run correct
2: that is that is correct Great. thank okay. you that that makes things much easier, but also, we don't really know what happened between the original movie and this. Godzilla's just been around forever as this movie begins, and as it begins, Godzilla has once again risen from his slumber and he is. Uh, terrorizing Japan, but there is, as you alluded to earlier, a network, uh, really just like a couple people, and like one guy they talk to on the phone, the Godzilla uh, Prediction Network is what they're called. And it's a man, uh, a single father, and his young daughter, and there's also a newspaper reporter, a woman who is trying to get the scoop on Godzilla, trying to get exciting new photos of Godzilla, And this Godzilla Prediction Network, they have ideological differences with the Japanese government. The government, who is represented by a character named Katagiri, he's from, I forget what his department was, but he wants to just kill Godzilla. Whereas the Godzilla Prediction Network says, no, we have to contain him. We have to study him. There is so much information in this man's cells. He is
1: so powerful that if we somehow are able to harness you know, what makes them tick. We could have medical breakthroughs, just healing technology that does not exist and that Godzilla could provide for us. Well, that's
0: proven to be true, isn't it? Yeah. Only it's used for evil by, because this has aliens by aliens. Uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, this film has a problem that uh, also plagued the first Godzilla 1985 reboot and then like the American 2000s Godzilla reboot is that the filmmakers always go like, we're going back to the basics. Like, maybe we'll have a monster, but not too much because this isn't a goof-em-up. This is the serious Godzilla everybody knows and loves. While the audience is like, no, just have Godzilla fight monsters. That's what we
0: want. <laughs> We're there for the slap fights. Just Yeah, don't
1: make it like Godzilla facing off against a flying turd the entire time, which is what essentially happens in Godzilla 2000.
0: <laughs> that, that's interesting. Neat,
2: right? I, I already feel like I like this movie more than Justin. Um, oh, Will does. But to get, to get back to the plot, yes, as you mentioned, there is an alien. They find this big rock, At the bottom of Tokyo Bay. And uh, it, it levitates out of the bay and it crosses paths with Godzilla as Godzilla is fighting with the army. And you can tell there is some negative chemistry between Godzilla and this big rock. But then the rock starts to crumble and you find out there is this shockingly beautiful um, CGI uh, uh, spacecraft. It looks like Terminator liquid metal.
0: I was going to say it's like a cross between uh, the flight of the navigator ship and an art palette.
2: Yeah. And it looks it looks very Ed Wood kind of uh, like CGI Ed Wood spacecraft. And it flies around, and it eventually just lands on top of a building. Meanwhile, the Godzilla Prediction Network they do some exciting research into Godzilla's cells and find out that it can, Godzilla can regenerate his cells faster than uh, any creature known to exist. And they call this they call this uh, t- uh, ability Regenerator G One. <laughs>
0: So creative. And I love that there's like a whole scene where they get super excited about, well, you get to name it. I get to name it. What an honor. We're calling it Regenerator G1.
1: Well, this uh, creature that appears in Godzilla 2000 is not a favorite. It has not reappeared. (laughs) I feel like there's rarely any toys of it because it doesn't have that much personality.
2: What this creature, whose name I believe is Orga. Uh, It it does have this big mouth that's like a big flower that eventually envelops Godzilla. And I mean, I, I don't think you have to be Sigmund Freud to figure out what some of the symbolism of of his mouth is.
0: So the final battle I actually enjoyed very much. That's the part where I was like, oh, this actually got real cool. And I like the idea that um, because this alien who is stealing all of the Earth's data, which is somehow going to end civilization, which I don't totally understand the link between those two things, but they're using the word data in a way I'm sure people understood in the 2000s. It is taking on aspects of Godzilla as it's taken its regenerator G1 and it becomes this weird, like, mutated version of Godzilla, I think is really kind of a cool idea
1: i mean it's clearly supposed to be a swipe at the american godzilla like (laughs) look at this monstrosity that's supposed to be parts of godzilla and it's just a creature that exists only to be destroyed well
0: i think that's the perfect place to bring us into why this is a response to the american godzilla who's got this one
1: well the american godzilla is (laughs) terrible made by people who clearly you know they probably had some childhood affection for godzilla but uh, they approached it in the worst way possible, which was, uh, we're going to make it good compared to what came before. And that uh, resulted in a T-Rex design because T-Rexes were very popular thanks to Jurassic Park. And, you know, it it pains me to say that like, well, the plot isn't as good as the, you know, Japanese Godzilla plots because oftentimes, especially the popular ones when they were more kidified, are all over the place. But there's a certain kind of, I don't know, crass, to uh, the 1997 Godzilla, especially the way that it treats the Godzilla character as kind of a uh, coward, um, a monster that, if you look at it right, the way that it's edited, maybe it has radioactive breath, but, you know, it's kind of more implied than actually uh, shown on screen. And it's just, I, I feel like, Uh, you know, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, the director and writer, there's just a kind of, what word am I looking for, Will? Like, looking down on the subject material? Yeah, condescending, I think is Condescending, yeah, to Godzilla as a franchise and just, you know, a character.
2: Yeah, Um, I mean, watching this movie, Godzilla 2000, I was struck by how beautiful I found it. Like, it's got a very, like, powerful, junky beauty to it. I mean, Godzilla as a character, especially compared to the Roland Emmerich version, is so he has such a great personality. First of all, Uh, it's like it's like as as Godzilla's eyes are watching the spacecraft go by, it's like watching your dog uh, observe something,
1: (laughs) which is funny because Godzilla has a real cat face in this movie. Ah.
0: CGI swimming Uh, Godzilla might be my favorite Godzilla because that's just quite the moment. I appreciated that. Uh, This also was a complete redesign of the character, like to Mm -hmm. bring it back to who it is. And this is a lot of people's favorite design of the character.
2: I love this design of the character. And like, I love how rubbery he is. I love how tactile he is. I love how intricately detailed he is. All the scales, you know, he's got, he's got those fins on the back of his tail, which are so... Uh, So precise, so detailed, but they also shake in an awkward way because they're rubber. And I think that sums up the beauty of this film.
1: Well, Will knows which is my favorite Godzilla design. That's definitely around Godzilla's Revenge where the Godzilla suit was so beat up, it's falling apart. And Godzilla has giant uh, protruding ping pong ball eyes the entire time. Also, he often does a little dance where he jumps up in the air and you know does a dance that was popular at the time in Japan. Yeah,
2: it was very expensive to make those suits. So in Godzilla vs. Gigan from 1972, I believe, you can see that he's got like a hole in his armpit because yep. like the, the suit was falling apart from so much use.
0: We talked about the redesign was partially because of this is an FU to the American version where they were like, this is not Godzilla. This is not what this is. Now, the original, the, the Godzilla remake in the US was meant to be a trilogy, which is why it ends on like an ominous view of like an egg that's got the, the mist going. And there was never actually a sequel made. Well, part of that is because the movie did not make even nearly enough money and basically everybody hated it. In Japan, the Toho Company Limited, they were like, okay, well, now we have to take this back they weren't intending to make another film until 2005 which it would have been the 50th anniversary of godzilla but they were like oh no we have to claim this back and make it better immediately (laughs) which started off the whole um the whole millennium segment
2: they probably also thought that because the american one came out and played all over the world that they would be able to get some like international traction for this production because none of the movies they made in the 90s, and they made like a half dozen Godzilla movies then, none of those really sold anywhere. They were just kind of strictly local productions.
0: But this also did get an American release, which it was the first Godzilla movie to do so, I believe. And some people went to the theater thinking this was a sequel to the American Godzilla, but it wasn't, so they were seeing something totally different. But it also got recut entirely for American audiences. What changes did they make in the the recut?
1: Oh, well, they made a lot of changes. They redubbed dialogue. They added more comedic bits. They uh, trimmed a lot of the movie out, reshuffled scenes, added sound effects. You know, I don't want to um, kind of look down upon the person that did this. And, you know, Wissy's kind of dubbed, it's very rare that you actually have a name to associate to the person that did it. But this one, it was uh, spearheaded by Michael Schlesinger, who's like a big, you know, monster kid and film fanatic. And he actually does commentary on the DVD going through the changes that they did to the picture.
0: Because he also planned his own trilogy off this, that he was going to have more of it made with Joe Dante directing, I guess this actually got pretty far in development
1: i mean that sounds like in retrospect he's like oh yeah this was gonna get made but <laughs> i i it would be hard for us to see that coming out yeah his godzilla reborn project the way that asian pop
2: movies were treated in the united states at that time was very different than it was now i mean Rumble in the Bronx with Jackie Chan had come out in 1995 and was very successful. Michael
0: Schlesinger actually was the one who brought that over. And so that was what some of his cred was, was that he brought in Rumble in the Bronx and everybody thought it was going to be a joke and it was a mega hit.
2: I did not know that. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the American version of Rumble in the Bronx was shorn of an awful lot of footage too. And there was a whole wave of Jackie Chan movies that came out from Miramax and New Line that also had like 20 minutes cut. Like some of them are just incomprehensible you can't you can't tell what's happening and you know if if the the reasoning behind that was listen these are asian movies and we're trying to sell them to an american audience it's a whole different market and i feel like it would just be very different now first of all the, these movies i don't think these movies would open on two thousand screens anymore uh there are so many different niche distribution channels you can uh micro target these movies on netflix where like You know, something like the Ip Man movies are very popular to a certain audience on Netflix and in limited theatrical release. But people didn't know how to market stuff that way in the in the mid nineties. So all there was was well, let's let's take this and dub it and uh, try to fit it into a kind of American template. Now I think people would regard that as a little bit racist.
1: Yeah, which is a little. I've heard the uh, Michael Schlesinger talk about it, and he's like, well, I had to fix the movie. Like, there were a a bunch of, like, logical uh, holes. There were sound effects missing. The music didn't really work or was misplaced. And that kind of talk, I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> like, <what laughs> Just are you
0: make doing? your own damn movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't mess with somebody else's. Because watching the, I watched uh, a little bit of the American version, a little bit of the dub, and I watched the, the Japanese for the purposes of this podcast. And the, the American one really does make it a joke, where, like, they were worried about one of the, uh, one of the people who's under attack by Godzilla yells, Jesus, uh, in the Japanese version, and in the American version, they yell,
1: great Caesar's
0: ghost. Yeah, it's it's the editor of the
2: newspaper.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, why would you mess with it in that way to make it funny? Because there's some really cool action moments in this movie. The elevator scene where he jumps down the elevator as like the blast from the alien is coming down and shattering all the windows. I'm like, that's a cool stunt. That's a really neat segment.
1: Well, Will has a story that he saw this theatrically when he came out, right, Will? Oh man, I was
2: so excited for this movie because I loved the Godzilla movies as a kid, but I don't think I really had the language to understand their appeal like when i was a kid when i was 10 or 11 years old you had good movies you had bad movies and you had so bad they're good movies (laughs) so uh, there were a lot of godzilla movies where and like when you're a kid you don't have a lot of accomplishments of your own uh you don't have much of a sense of identity and so i think you're part of you is trying to think of things that you are superior to and if you can see a movie like plan nine from outer space or a movie where a guy in a rubber suit is a monster. You can very easily say that's so fake. How can they think that's real? What were they thinking? So that's, I guess how I appreciated these movies when I was 10 years old. I mean, looking back, I think these movies are all very beautiful and anybody with two eyes can see uh, just, just the sheer tactile beauty of them, especially Godzilla 2000 here. Where some of the night scenes, like that final battle at the end where there's that incredibly detailed cityscape and there's this this beautiful neon light, this very beautiful filmy look to everything. I I, I don't know. I I just loved looking at it. And it was seeing Godzilla 2000 in a theater um, when I think I realized I had a bit of an epiphany like, oh, wait a minute, like they get it. They, they get that it's a guy in a rubber suit, and this is a whole other kind of beauty.
0: Yeah, shift your head into what exactly they're trying to do, shift your reality. It's almost a suspension of disbelief of like, this is what this world looks like.
1: Yeah, as opposed to like an eyesore of a CGI creation that as a society, we've all accepted like, oh, this is good, we'll accept this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, even though it's
2: Godzilla, as far from reality as it can get. Godzilla has mass and he has weight and he has texture. And when you look at the 1954 movie, Yeah, you know it's a guy in a rubber suit, but the black and white photography is so enveloping, and uh, the creature has such presence as a physical object, and the model work is so detailed and intricate that you start to accept this world on its own terms, and it becomes almost dreamlike. And I think Godzilla 2000, in its best moments, has a bit of that too.
0: Something I really love about the Godzilla character in general is that it's simultaneously a villain and a hero to humanity. So whenever these other aliens pop up or these other creatures pop up, it takes them out and it's like, no, this is my town to destroy. <laughs> you know, this is this is what I get. And this one there's something in the edit where they almost make him into an action hero where like at the end where like he blasts the creature and the creature goes down and it's rising and then they cut to Godzilla doing like a And it's almost like that's his like Arnold style tagline of like, have a blast, bitch. You know, that almost <laughs> feels like what they've edited it into.
1: Well, the reason that I think that Godzilla has so many fans as he does is that he isn't pigeonholed as like a hero or a villain. He's just a big monster that's going on his own way. And he's pissed off. And when he gets angry or he fights like another rubber-suited creature, it's great, especially when you get real, like, ferocious Godzilla, just ripping into them, taking hits, never going down, but finally just winning the day to walk off into the sunset, <laughs> into the ocean. And then the audience, you know, they jump to their feet, and they're like, yay!
0: He's trying to destroy us all! <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very right. He may be a monster, but he's our monster.
1: I mean, Godzilla Millennium ends with Godzilla just walking through the city, blowing up buildings. <laughs> and right it has that beautiful...
2: Passage of dialogue, at least in the English language version. Why does Godzilla keep protecting us? Maybe it is because Godzilla is inside each one of us. <laughs> yep, <laughs>
0: so it's in the Japanese version too. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. There's, you mentioned Jurassic Park earlier and the resonance of that. The entire opening sequence where uh, Godzilla shows up for the first time is directly out of Jurassic Park, where they're literally in a Jeep and the eye shows up and blinks at them and then they have to go in reverse. I'm like, oh, this is like almost shot for shot Jurassic Park. This is wild that this had this influence.
1: I would say that the other major influence on the film is Twister. Oh, yeah. Because that's essentially what they're doing is they're chasing a natural disaster (laughs) and it goes through the same beats as that movie.
0: That's so weird. Oh, yeah. All right. I think that is the perfect place to move into an American film, which is also taking a turn on a classic story. So when we come back, we're going to look at a movie that made Toronto into both London and New Orleans to varying degrees of success. Buildings entirely made of glass, like Brookfield Place and the Intercare Centre. Can't be Canada. Can't be Canada. Uh, (laughs) What vampiric globetrotter would be threatening the new millennium with their ancient evil? It's Dracula 2000, and that's coming up after the break. (laughs)
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: Imagine this. It's 1998. Your noted writer, director, and script doctor, Scott Derrickson, you may be familiar with his work in such indie films as Doctor Strange and Sinister. And one day, you get a call from one of the former heads of Miramax at the height of his powers, and he says, Scott, I need you to come work on a new script I bought. It's called Dracula 2000. You ask if it's any good, and he replies, No, it stinks, but it's called Dracula 2000. The rewrite Scott Derrickson did on the script was discarded, and although there's only one final writer listed in the credits, Joel Soyson, this seems like a case of a dozen script writers at a dozen typewriters trying to make something better before the movie has to shoot in an absurdly short time frame like six months from pre-production to release fast. The final version of Dracula 2000 has some really serious flaws, but it also has some redeeming qualities that, yeah, I'm going to say it, make it a fun watch. I kind of liked it. Uh, I
1: enjoy Dracula 2000, mostly because I have a soft spot for its director, Patrick Lussier, who came out of the Dimension Film Factory. And it's a film that, like a lot of Dimension Pictures, is so reflective of the year that it came out that its styles and techniques only lasted like a very short period of time and have not continued because they're not very good but it's great to see it up on screen in all of its glory
0: what are some other examples of dimension films that people might be familiar with
1: uh, you have The Faculty. You have Scream. I can see all the posters in my mind's eye. Just a bunch of generic teenagers all
0: standing <laughs> uh, in front
1: of nothing. And that was a dimension horror poster staple.
0: My friend refers to this particular genre as soft goth. And
1: the I think that's goth. the
0: perfect sort of en- encapsulation of it. Will, you did the uh, the Godzilla 2000 description. Justin, why don't you give us like a quick plot summary of Dracula?
1: So Dracula 2000 starts like all great Dracula uh, films do with a bunch of robbers breaking into a Toronto landmark, but in this movie portrayed as Van Helsing's home (laughs) to steal. Uh, They seem pretty unclear on what they want to steal, but they stumble upon Dracula's coffin and they pop it open and bring it on a plane, and uh-oh, who pops up but Dracula himself, played by Jerry Butler in a very long wig. And before you know it, Dracula is on the hunt for, it's Van Helsing's granddaughter, right? That's, That's correct. That's right.
2: By the way, didn't you think Gerard Butler looked a little bit like young Justin Trudeau with his long hair?
0: <laughs> a little bit? Okay, before we even get into this, did you guys happen to look at the link I sent you to Gerard Butler's audition tape for this? Yeah. It's
1: Awful. Awful. <laughs>
0: But when you think about it, it's, uh, number one, auditions always look goofy, and that's some people who don't act don't really know that, because you have to act into a void, and you kind of, you're like, what is gonna put me in the character? And in the answer for Gerard Butler, it is an absurdly long lestat, like uh, like um, Brad Pitt in, in uh, Interview with the Vampire Style wig, with a whole lot of eyeliner and a very odd goatee, making his eyes as big and compelling as possible as he hisses at the camera. Uh, yeah, I wish it...
1: he had continued to rock the goatee in this movie. <laughs> you know? Nothing's <laughs> <laughs> says uh threatening like a goatee
2: it is weird sometimes to see a star before the star persona had really solidified and i don't think the star persona for him really solidified until about 300
0: that was his like big kicker this was meant to be his launch point this movie we'll get into it was meant to launch a few careers a thousand ships if you will and yeah. it, it worked with one i guess Really? Yeah. You mean, well, are I, you talking about Gerard Butler? I am I don't talking think about Gerard Butler. Didn't really
2: yeah. work with him, did it?
0: <laughs> well, he went, okay, what year is 300? 300 is 2005, 2006?
2: 2007.
0: 2007. Really? Really? It's that he had, far? He had
2: Phantom of the Opera in between right. there, too, which, which was, was another one, yeah, big don't
1: forget failure. Lara uh, Croft, The Cradle of Life and Timeline. Man. Those did not uh, propel uh, Jerry Butler to the heights of stardom. Someone really liked him, didn't they? I mean, it's a classic like a casting agent either has blackmail information on <laughs> oh, some geez. people that are doing casting because it's, it's like, oh, Sam Worthington is in every movie this year <laughs> or Jay Courtney for some baffling reason.
0: We didn't really finish the plot summary, but all you need to know is that then he starts running amok in uh, New Orleans and uh, Christopher Plummer playing Van Helsing, thank you Canada and for that casting he then has to hunt him down. His partner is Johnny Lee Miller who is also trying to help with the hunt uh, and then you get like your bevy of beautiful women uh, the best friend of Mary is played by Vitamin C who they're also trying to make a star at that point. As we go Wow. <sighs> We're going to get into that. That's another person they tried.
2: Let's not forget Jerry Ryan as a a, a newscaster who's another one of Dracula's
1: brides. Guys, Star Trek. You're you're, you're forgetting the most important character out of all, and that is the Virgin Megastore.
0: Yes. Okay. So, this, uh, when I first saw the married character wake up because she has all these compelling dreams, who could they be about this mysterious man? Dracula. Obviously, it's about Dracula. But she wakes up and she's wearing a nightshirt for the Virgin Megastore. And I was like, oh, that's a cute little reference. That's funny. No, no, no. She works for Virgin Megastore. You spend the entire, you spend like whole scenes there. And here's what's so wacko: they did not get paid for this product placement. They just thought it would be funny. And the only thing they got out of it was one day they got a 35% discount for casting crew. That's it.
1: That's so good. Especially considering the film has become defined as the virgin megastore Dracula picture. It's I love wild. I love the
2: idea of like Christopher Plummer or Gerard Butler being like, ooh, I got a 35% discount.
1: Listen, people like, um, you know, Vitamin C and Jennifer Esposito, they were uh, overjoyed to get that discount.
0: Well, at one point, Vitamin C is actually doing a scene in front of her own albums.
1: Wait a wait a wait, wait a minute. So is she playing Vitamin C in this movie?
0: I don't so know. She's playing Lucy because... Because the the, ta- yeah. the line that they use in every single one of the trailers that obviously they think is very clever is, uh, I was named after the Peanuts character right before you know she goes on a snog fest with Dracula.
2: Oh, there's also a hot female Renfield too,
1: played by Jennifer Esposito. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a film that. I was saying that it is defined by the year it was released, uh, 2000, but it's also defined by the vampire films that have come before, like uh, Vampire Lestat, Interview with a Vampire, and Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Like, that's all over this but in a cheaper fashion.
0: Well, I want to get into this just for one second, because the amount of movies that were vampire-oriented in 2000 is wild. Not all of them were released then, but they were slated for release in 2000. Now, when you think about it, Bram Stoker's was 92. Interview with the Vampire was 94. Then there's a huge gap till 98 when you have Blade. And then in 2000s it's Dracula 2000, Shadow of the Vampire, The Forsaken, Vampires Los Muertos, um, and Queen of the Damned was supposed to come out that year, but Aaliyah died, so they didn't end up releasing it. So it's like, bam, 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 vampire. Vampires are back kids <laughs> yeah.
1: vampire lost murtos the straight to video <laughs> sequel to the vampire starring bon Jovi.
0: <laughs> exactly but like what was the change and what's interesting here is that this also ends on a sequel point where mina is now or the mina Marie, the mary character is now meant to become half vampire half human and is gonna now be a vampire hunter and i'm like you just had blade two years before why is this now the thing
1: I think that what changed uh, two words, the Matrix, Mm. and that studios were scrambling to find something that could fit within that aesthetic box, and their eyes just went toward vampires, which, you know, Matrix does have, like, a big goth vibe going on. So if you just take vampires, which are already kind of built to sustain that, oh, let's just do goth Matrix-style vampires.
2: This is also still not all that long after Scream, and I know what you did last summer, which... After a long fallow period in the horror genre in the early 90s, uh, kickstarted a new horror template of uh, hot, fashionable young people, like, like a kind of more upscale looking version of the 80s slasher movies. So this seems like in that lineage, but also with a bit of Matrix sheen on top of it.
1: I mean, they did hire uh, the cinematographer, Peter Powell, who was famous for shooting like John Woo's The Killer and uh, Ronnie Yu's Bride with White Hair to do the cinematography. They also got a Japanese, but very Hong Kong inspired choreographer, Koichi Sakamoto, to do all the wire work in this film. So there was a definite conscious effort to follow in the Matrix footsteps.
0: Well, the other thing I think that it, it takes what it came from but I think it also adds a couple things to the mythology one of them I think is really clever and the other one I'm like really guys really so the one thing I think is cool is the leeches the fact that Van Helsing is actually technically immortal because he uses leeches to suck blood out of Dracula's body and then a hypodermic needle to extract that and then inject it into himself to get longevity but none of the vampire powers which I think is actually pretty cool that's a clever little thing but then the last one is that Dracula is Judas Iscariot the silver
1: all the things you came to despise okay
2: that's, I, I that's had to pause much. the movie and check Wikipedia just to be sure <laughs> that's what I heard I thought that is That is madness that they created this.
0: (laughs) But it shows that they were actually trying to do something different, which when you consider, so I mentioned this is a movie that was made in six months from pre-production to release because they all of a sudden realized, oh, we only have until the end of the year 2000 to put this out and it has to be done now, that they made something that isn't that terrible.
1: I mean, that's a very generous way (laughs) of approaching it. Listen, not terrible, that you could put it on the cover. I, I think a lot of people would argue that it is pretty terrible. I do like that Judas stuff because it is so out of left field. Yeah, doesn't really have an impact on the plot other than allowing them to do the signifier of Dracula being hung on a giant Jesus cross.
0: Well, also that he does an entire monologue to like a tiny electric Jesus, which is pretty amazing. Now, I drink the blood of your children. I give them more than just eternal life. I give them what they crave most. All the pleasure you would deny
1: them. I heard in some interviews with the director and screenwriter, they're like, we shot a virgin where at the end, um, Dracula asks for forgiveness what? from God and Jesus. And by doing that, it's allowed to go to heaven. And it was like, I would have liked to see that. And <laughs> that would have been wild. And audiences would have been like, what the hell?
2: I enjoyed watching this movie just because there's always something kind of funny and stupid on screen at any given time. Like, it's weird to watch a movie where you've got Christopher Plummer as, as Van Helsing. And then there's all of a sudden Wirefoo like, like yeah. the, the the wire foo ruptures the reality of what's come before. So. Can we
1: also
0: just say that Christopher Plummer
1: does not phone this in? I mean, Christopher Plummer rarely phones anything sure. in because he's so grave that it's almost impossible for him to do anything else. Draculia. Not myth.
0: No ravings of a mad Irish novelist. Oh, no. He's real. I assure you.
2: It's great seeing Christopher Plummer surrounded by like Johnny Lee Miller and just like a cast of, you know, young whomevers. Um, And also, I mean, I'm biased because I'm living in Toronto. So when I see the Brookfield place in a movie, all I can see is the Brookfield place. But like, so he lived there. Was that an apartment building? In the, and, and how does it have a crypt in the basement?
0: <laughs> I think it was both his apartment building and his uh, lair. For lack of a better word, I'm going to say it was his lair. And why um, does it
2: have this huge lobby area?
0: I don't know. And why is the security so bad? Because like when it started out, I'm like, oh, this is a heist movie. That's kind of interesting as they like break in and like it, you have like the long coats and uh, they're doing all sorts of like technological things to break into the crypt of like popping out eyeballs that have retina scanners. I'm like, okay, that's actually kind of neat. And then it goes nowhere. And then everybody just seems to be bad at their jobs.
1: Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say is that like, this is a film that sets up a lot of fun stuff. Like the robbers have all these like weird steampunk weapons that they use when they rob the place, including a ball that shatters and covers someone in dust yeah. to knock them out. And I was like, oh, I hope there'll be more of it. Nope, that's it. <laughs> that's After that, they're get. pretty much incompetent. And they're like,
0: ah, no, Dracula. <laughs> the other thing I want to point out is we talked about them filming in Toronto a lot for this, but they did actually film in New Orleans. Um, so again, this is not a cheaply made movie. Like, they're flying all over the place. They're they are filmed like, like
2: one block in New Orleans. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, they filmed in the actual swamps in New Orleans. And I have oh, this okay. whole thing here. So yeah, they were in uh, swamps that were infested with alligators, so much so that a memo went out instructing them that if approached by one of the beasts, they were to run away in a zigzag pattern. And <laughs> on the last day, there's footage of um, uh, Gerard Butler, like, tied to a post where, like, they fling him up out of the water and he said people are feeding the alligator and I'm lying in the water to like keep it away from him it was like 25 feet away from him where they were trying to distract these alligators so they could get the shot and I'm just like oh my god this does not seem worth the risking the life of an actor for
1: no it definitely does not seem worth that (laughs) well
0: you
2: can't argue with the results on screen you know there are some of those movies like uh, Fitzcarraldo and Dracula 2000 where a a lot of blood sweat and tears went into it but it's all up there On screen.
0: (laughs) Now, as a product of its time, which I am not entirely clear whether or not that's a compliment, but I do intend it to be, this is a nice little time capsule of like a particular style of the 2000s where like new metal was just coming up. It wasn't a joke. You have a lot of bands kind of representing that. Um, You have a certain style of fashion. There's a uh, like a a language people are using, like a like a uh, what's like slang that people are using. It's very 2000 and that's kind of fun. I feel like there's a drinking game that could be associated with this very easily.
1: I love the scene where uh, Dracula looks at a giant monitor that's showing a documentary about goth things. Yes, And then he just goes, brilliant (laughs) like he is a big fan
0: but the idea isn't new to bring a Dracula into the future because that's kind of what Dracula is he's immortal even in the the original Bram Stoker books there's a line of Van Helsing talking about we now live in an age of wonders and Dracula just has to like accommodate himself every time he comes up and Christopher Lee was in what was it 1972 Dracula yeah Dracula Dracula, 1972.
1: 1972 AD
0: yeah so it's another thing where like it just keeps like that's the logical story progression for Dracula is just keep bringing him forward
2: i will say mm-hmm. that watching this movie was a somewhat disturbing experience just to see how dated the early 2000s looks like even <laughs> even compared well, to it most, was 21 years ago yeah like most movies from the 90s though look less dated than this and mm. uh, i don't know th- that's just a personal thing uh any any year that i can vividly remember um that looks this dated in a movie uh, i get very upset and sad uh but Also, don't you think this 2000 aesthetic was very short-lived? Like, like even by 2005, this aesthetic aesthetic did not exist in the first part of 1999. And it didn't exist in 2005 anymore. I don't think it even existed in 2004. But for a year or two, there were all these people with, like, frosted tips. And there was that matrix (laughs) sheen on everything. And uh, everyone had that particular makeup. Um, yeah,
1: uh, everything was blue. And you're like, why is it blue all the time? What's going on?
2: Yeah, everything looks like
1: Ballistic X versus Sever. (laughs) Uh, The classic (laughs) film directed by Chaos that everybody remembers. That's
0: that's funny, actually. You brought that up and I'm like, I remember that movie because it filmed in Vancouver when I was living in Vancouver and people were a lot of people I know were cast in it or going out for it.
1: I think that is the like final movie of the 2000s is ballistic x versus ever <laughs> there's nothing else to say after you've made that picture also
2: i think there's something very early 2000s about the toronto locations in this movie because before sars hit toronto in mm. like 2003 or so every bad hollywood movie was shooting in toronto uh, and, you know, there's there's a whole wave of movies like Driven with Sylvester Stallone or Exit Wounds with Steven Seagal. I mean, I'm forgetting a whole bunch of others. Or The Tuxedo with Jackie Chan, where it's always like, oh, yeah, we're going to see the U of T campus at some point. We're going to see Casa Loma at some point. Uh, we don't see Cas Loma in this movie, but... Which like, is a missed wow, opportunity. What a missed opportunity. <laughs> Thank I, you, Justin. I agree. But those, those landmarks to me are now symbolic in my mind of bad Studio B movies.
0: Do see the distillery, though. The distillery is in this.
1: <laughs> you know, the 2000s fashion as well, it just... I don't know why this association comes to me instantly, but it's just cheapness. Like, it just feels so disposable and plastic and not in a charming way like the 80s do. There's almost like a lack of imagination and creativity on screen.
2: Well, it sure seemed cutting edge at the time, I tell you. When we were in the 2000s, it was like, oh man, frosted tips. That is the pinnacle of hairstyles. Wait, did you ever
1: have frosted tips, Will? No, I was
2: was too afraid. It was just too cutting edge. I don't want to
1: look too cool.
0: Looking back, it's the same as the Y2K stuff. Looking back now, we can laugh at it with the hindsight of, like, how ridiculous was that. But at the time, these all seem legitimate. So I was on Twitter. Someone posted a photo of a Teen Vogue cover that featured the pop stars of the future, which were Beyonce, Pink, and Vitamin C. So at the time, you were like, oh, yeah, it's it's perfectly legit that vitamin C can stand side by side with who we now know are two of the greatest pop stars of all time.
2: As well as two of the greatest actors of all time, uh, Christopher Plummer and Gerard Butler.
0: I didn't realize this, but this has two direct-to-video sequels which, like Ginger Snaps, were filmed at the same time and then cut into two different films featuring a character that was supposed to be in the first movie but they ended up editing out which i believe is played by jason scott lee i could be wrong
1: he is indeed he's a vampire hunter in dracula 2000 uh part two and part three
0: wow okay so have you justin justin i'm gonna ask you seriously have you seen these uh
1: not only do uh, have i seen them (laughs) i own them on dvd So Dracula 2000, uh, from what I uh, was able to discern, was their original pitch for um, the first one, which is that a bunch of college students kidnap the like corpse of Dracula and put him in like an abandoned building and do like a Reservoir Dog suicide kings on him. What? Where they like Dracula who is kept under like sunlight lamps, like he kind of like psychologically. Um, You know, turns them all against each other. So this is like a real budget movie. It takes place in one location. And uh, yeah, that's basically the plot. And what's fun about it is it feels like in a rarity, the director and screenwriter of Dracula 2000 also made the DTV sequels and they get to be much weirder. Like they bring in like a bunch of lore um, like Dracula can't like cross a body of water. Mm. If you throw a bunch of rice in front of him, he has to count them all before he can keep moving. Oh, that's a deep like, cut. And so there's some fun stuff in that. Like for example, the rice thing, when Dracula finally escapes, they throw out a thing of rice and Dracula goes, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seventy million five, six, 70 million pieces of rice. Like he just counts it instantly. <laughs> like that's the joke. <laughs>
0: That's why I think there's so much love in this movie even though it was made at lightning speed for almost no budget is that like they are genuinely trying to make new things and pay homage to the actual story.
1: Yeah, and I mean you definitely feel the budget in Dracula. I they just called it Dracula 2 Ascension, but it's more fun to call it Dracula 2000 Part 2. <laughs> um it, you also have jason scott lee which is kind of like you know a martial arts vampire hunter which is fun and he would go on to be the main character in the third one (laughs) where this is like the real bottom of the budget like a shot in probably bulgaria i'm gonna say i think
0: they were in actual romania for this i remember reading an interview where they got to go to romania properly
1: jason scott lee and his Comedic partner Jason London.
0: <laughs> oh, that's dating it. Oh boy.
1: And I think that at that point, obviously uh, Jerry Butler does not come back, but Rutger Hauer <gasps> plays Dracula, credited as Dracula Three. Okay. And it, it is super weird. They like fight. Dra- uh, they fight. Uh, circus performer uh, Dracula
0: so they're on like stilts and stuff like that am I wrong that Rutger Hauer is actually brilliant casting for that character
1: yeah he is uh, definitely I think he's because he was also in Dario Argento's Dracula which is another awful movie
2: (laughs) he plays Van Helsing in that one
1: right he doesn't play Dracula but uh, in Dracula 3 ah man it's tough to say 2000 part (laughs) 3 Rutger Hauer plays a Dracula that's like hooked up to like a bunch of computers (laughs) he's like techno Dracula yeah
0: And there is also a Dracula 3000, but that has no relationship to this where Dracula is on a spaceship
1: as he should be. I mean, if you're going to 3000. Oh, man, I forgot. I'm just looking at IMDb right now. Roy Scheider is in Dracula two thousand part two. Oh, God. Bottom of the barrel.
0: I think that is the perfect place to leave us. Uh, So once again, I want to thank Justin DeClue. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Will Sloan. Thank you so much. Thank you. And once again, you can hear both Will and Justin in their podcast, The Important Cinema Club. When we come back, we're going to be looking at a movie where the script was in a major bidding war at Sundance and Spike Lee and his production company won out. Will it win over our hearts? Oh, you bet it will. It's real good. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Our guests today were Will Sloan and Justin DeClue. Supervising producer is Ryan Mainz. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next time.